from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Welcome uh, to everyone here. Welcome to you if you're a guest with us. So glad to see you. Uh, we're continuing to make our way, uh, as we have the last handful of weeks, through 1 Peter, wrapping up chapter 3 today. So our preaching text is 1 Peter. Is my mic a little muffled? Uh, is that better? Okay, great. Perfect. It got turned in my shirt. Anyway, whatever. doesn't matter. Um, wrapping up chapter 3 today, a few more weeks ahead of us, uh, four more actually, um, before we hit the Advent season, which is kind of hard to believe that Christmas is almost here, but it's here. Uh, So just to kind of fill you in real briefly before we start today on kind of where we're going with sermon series is, whatever the plural is of that. So we're going to finish up this one on November the 20th, and then we'll enter into a season of Advent, four weeks on Advent, Um, a sermon series called Far as the Curse is Found, where we're going to unpack just the effects of the curse from Genesis 3 and how Christ has reversed that um, through his birth, life, death, resurrection, all those things. And we'll have a Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve. Um, and then we will not have Sunday service the following day. So Sunday, Christmas Day is a Sunday this year. And so we will not meet Sunday, December 25th. So December 24th will function as kind of a Sunday service, Christmas Eve service hybrid there on that night. Uh, we're going to spend the first handful of weeks in January, actually starting January 8th um, through the end of the month on who do we desire to be as a people of Emmanuel Church? Um, what kind of culture do we want to build here at this church? And so we're going to look at our mission statement, our vision statement for four weeks. And then after that, we will begin a sermon series that will lead us, honestly, through probably mid-May on First and Second Samuel. Um, so we're going to cover some Old Testament ground, First and Second Samuel. Not hitting everything, obviously, because those are really long books, and we'd be there for 20 years uh, if we did that. But we're going to hit the high points of those books. So yeah, I just wanted to fill you in. I'll remind you of these things numerous times over the next handful of weeks and months, um, but I wanted to kind of give you some direction on where we're going after 1 Peter. Uh, So this morning, we come to a text in 1 Peter, verses 8 through 22, um, that Martin Luther says, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So uh, if Martin Luther um, can't wrap his mind around what's going on in this text, uh, then my hopes aren't too high for us. But we do have the Spirit of God in us. Um, And regardless of the difficulty of the text, there's some very clear things uh, in the verses for this morning that are intended to equip us, to build us up in the faith, and to glorify our Lord. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, and a lot of these texts, or a lot of these points can be summed up, and I'll have this on the screen for you, in kind of the thesis statement for this morning, and it's this, the triumph of Christ provides our hope in life and death. That the triumph of Christ provides our hope in life and death. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we are going to uh, just get after it here. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit, um, who we believe in, who we rely on. Uh, We are grateful, too, for regenerating our hearts, making us new in Christ, and continuing to teach us and make us more to the image of Christ. And so I pray this morning, as we tackle a a difficult text in your word, that you just give us, uh, one, confidence in you. 
um, that although this is difficult for us, you have given it to us as your people for our good. So confidence in you, but also, Lord, humility with one another, kindness towards one another, that if we differ in our interpretation of these verses, that, Lord, oh God, we can be um, sympathetic towards one another and, and lean on one another for greater understanding. All of your word is intended to equip us and build us up. And so we pray you do that this morning through it for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So throughout these uh, 14 verses, and we'll read them throughout the sermon this morning, but throughout these 14 verses we're looking at today, Peter is kind of all over the place. He kind of bounces from one thing to the next to the next. He begins talking about relationships within the body of Christ, and then he talks about how we're to approach unjust suffering outside the body of Christ, which we talked about already a little bit. He gets into the suffering of Christ, again, unjustly on the cross, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And then once again, he moves into Christ's triumph over all powers, principalities, and authorities uh, in this world and in the heavenly places. So trying to find a kind of a common theme that runs throughout these verses was, was honestly really challenging this week. And every commentator you read says something different, which is not helpful at all. And so, uh, but I really do believe, I really do believe that the common thread is our governing statement for this morning. That Christ truly is in whom we find hope in all aspects in this life, even in our dying. That in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ, that in our responses to those who mock us and disdain us because of our faith to Christ Jesus, in our hope of providing clear answers to people in the midst of our suffering that want evidence on why we cling to our faith, and even when our hope, our, even our hope in taking our final breath in this life, that all of it finds its catalyst and foundation in the person of Jesus Christ. That he's the center of it all. And we've all known people who have demonstrated this kind of stable, unshaken faith in Christ Jesus in our lives, right? We all can name them. I mean, this past Monday, I drove over to Marietta, to Johnson Ferry, um, where I served for eight years before coming here for a funeral. And the funeral was for a 90-year-old man named Tom, um, who I had the privilege of knowing and studying the Bible with on a weekly basis for a handful of years. And, you know, uh, I really, honestly, most of my days at Johnson Ferry were hanging out with old, older people, <laughs> um, 30, 40, 50 years older than me, which was a great blessing and benefit and so much wisdom to glean. And Tom was one of those men that I would spend time with every Monday morning, 6.30 in the morning. We'd go through God's Word together. And he's, the, he's kind of the old guy that at 83 years old is still climbing trees with a chainsaw, like cutting limbs down, where his wife's like, you can't do that anymore. And he's like, I'm just serving people. Um, he's just an active, healthy man most of his life. Loved Jesus, loved the people of God, loved to serve people, just a good, godly man. And, and throughout his funeral, there were stories of hope. You know, stories from Tom, post-death, that stories that were relayed back to us that even in his final days as his mind began to slip with dementia, that he still held on to hope in Christ that his mind would one day be restored. Hope from his wife, Alice Fay, who's still alive and shared at the funeral the hope that she had that she would see Tom again. And even songs we sang were full of hope. We sang I'll Fly Away, which I haven't heard that song in a long time, but it was one of his favorites. We sang that. It's a hope-filled song. Right? And so we sang songs of hope. And Jesus Christ was the source of hope in that situation in life and death, the source of hope in Tom's life. 
But before I got to the funeral, um, I drove over actually a few hours earlier to spend some time with a close, close uh, friend and mentor of mine who this summer was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And this man has been a source of great encouragement to me uh, as a young father and pastor and, and husband and He's, him and his family specifically gave towards our adoption to get Riley to our house. He was one of the first men to hold Riley. You know, when we brought her home from the hospital, um, him and his wife were always the first in line for meal trains or to help out financially with us, with our adoption, or first in line for childcare, which is very nice. Um, just a good, good man, a good godly man, and I love him. I love him so much. And He just wrapped up a pretty aggressive period of chemo and radiation, um, where the doctor literally told him, I'm going to take you to the brink of death, but I promise you I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. So I went over a couple hours before the funeral just to sit with him on his back porch, and we sat down and just to catch up on life and spend some time with him. And You know, he's not certain how this chemo and radiation is going to uh, affect the cancer in his body. He hasn't gotten scans back yet of how it's going to do that. He won't get those until December. He's a guy who uh, was very fit, but has lost a lot of weight, very frail in that moment. He felt pretty bad physically this past Monday, um, just physically bad from, from his time with the chemo and radiation. And as I sat with him, his demeanor and the conversation and his disposition just rang of hope. You know, hope that even if this cancer took his life in this world, that Christ had claimed his eternity. That Jesus Christ was his hope in life, but is also his hope in death and in dying. Now, some of us this morning, we just need to hear a word of hope. You know, just to be reminded that Christ is actually triumphant in all things. And therefore, he will bring us to triumph. That he will bring us to victory. Even as we find ourselves in this life in the bleakest moments maybe we've ever encountered before. You know, most of my job as a pastor is not necessarily to teach you something new, to teach you some avenue of new theology, although that's a part of it. But most of my role as a pastor is to remind you of things you already know, to be an objective, clear voice reciting gospel truths to those of you who feel like your lives are falling apart and you're forgetting the truth. Now, today's one of those days. There's definitely going to be some new, some getting into the weeds on some things as we look particularly towards the end of this chapter in 1 Peter. But most of today's sermon is reminding you of who Christ is, of who you are, of what he has done, and how this affects you. You know, this passage for today can really be split up into three sections, verses 8 through 12, verses 13 to 17, and verses 18 to 22. And in each of these sections... Peter exposes an area of our lives where we find true gospel hope in Jesus Christ. So, first area, first way we see Christ as our hope in verses 8 through 12 can be summed up like this. Christ is the catalyst for renewed relationships. The Christ is the catalyst for renewed relationships. <clears throat> Read them again, or again for the first time, uh, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. 
or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you recall, a few weeks ago, we talked about servants and masters. Peter's addressing servants and masters. And then last week, we talked about wives and husbands. Uh, but now here, Peter then captures, now captures everyone in the church. Finally, all of you. So everybody else. There's no categories here of specific people he's talking to, but he's talking to all of us as members of Christ's body. And in verse 8, he lists five qualities believers need to possess in relation to one another within the church. And with these five qualities, he says two things, or really one, one thing. He says, regarding relationships in the body, that we are for those among us. So we are advocates for those among us. We are their champions. Christ has radically changed how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. We've established this already. A lot of today is reminders of what Peter's already talked about. You know, Peter's already laid the groundwork for the Christian community to be an alternate society within this world. A holy priesthood, royal nation, people for God's own possession. We have a new identity now in Christ and a new way of relating to one another in relation to Christ. In this way we relate to one another, it subversively defies how society tells us we are to behave and treat one another. And the five qualities Peter says we need to possess are unity, sympathy or compassion towards one another, brotherly love or this familial affection. We talked about that a few weeks ago in chapter one. Tenderness or gentleness towards one another. And then humility. Not thinking less of ourselves necessarily, but thinking of ourselves less. And every single one of these things is undergirded by implicit, crucial traits from this text that we have to have for these to be carried out. And those two things are commitment, so being devoted to the good of one another in the body of Christ, and selflessness, being willing to lay down our preferences, our energy, our resources, our time, our rights for the building up and flourishing of one another. We can form our own individual desires to come into and match the community of faith's desires. And this is hard. This is hard. Uh, it really is. And it's actually a counter to many strategies that modern churches tend to take in reaching people. You know, many modern churches seek to attract and cater to potential members based around their own personal preferences. You know, marketing strategies are created. This, I've been in churches like this. Marketing strategies are created. Amenities are provided to make people uh, comfortable and provide an experience they're going to leave talking about. And the last thing anyone ever expects in these types of cultures is to be called upon to lay down their preferences for the good of somebody else. And if one is called to lay down too much or change too much, he or she can always just go to the church down the street that aligns a little more with how they desire to live. 
Now, I think looking around for a great gospel preaching church is crucial. Super important. I'm not knocking that at all. And praise the Lord, there's so many gospel preaching churches here in Birmingham. I mean, it's an amazing thing. But if our tendency as believers is to peace out once we're called upon to get uncomfortable or to sacrifice our own preferences or even ourselves, to check our own preconceived preferences and notions around church at the door, then I would say if our tendency is to leave when things get hard, then I would say that we probably don't possess the commitment or selflessness needed to be a community manifesting verse 8 here. And I will say this about Emmanuel Church, um, and I'm not just tooting your horn because I'm your pastor, uh, but God has been so gracious to this body of believers. He has created and cultivated in many ways that kind of people here. The fact that this church is so strong and selfless and committed is a testament of God's grace towards us. And at the same time, God desires to demonstrate more of his grace in this community as we continue to enter into one another's joys, into one another's sufferings, into one another's pains, to bear up underneath the burdens of one another, even if it costs us greatly, in order to see God's power manifested in us for his glory and for the good of this community. Whatever the future holds for this church, whatever the future holds for this people, let us not cease to be committed and selfless towards one another. So Christ, he transforms our relationships with those hostile toward, uh, transforms relationships with those in the body, but also transforms relationships with those outside the body that are hostile towards us. So not only are we for those among us, verse 9 shows us that we also bless those against us. We bless them. You know, Peter shifts his conversation. This is how he gets all over the place here. He shifts his conversation in verse 9 to those who revile us and despise us because of our commitment to Christ. Not only are we not to retaliate when ridiculed by those in the outside world, but we're supposed to go a step beyond retaliation and bless them. Like, Offer the gospel and its promises to them, even though they currently feel spite towards us. To quote one of the commentators I read, he said, It's difficult enough simply to refrain from retaliation, but it may seem superhuman to return blessing for evil and insult. But this is the path for the Christian who wishes to follow in the Lord's footsteps, because to this you have been called. And that's the language in verse 9. To this kind of blessing, your enemies have been called. It's the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 27 and 28. He says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And it's the example of Christ, not just the words of Christ, that back up what he says when he chooses to invoke blessing upon the very people that crucified him to the cross. You know, it's truly a work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to love one another within the body. It is even more a work of the Holy Spirit that puts in us the desires to bless those that seek to harm us. This cannot be manufactured by sheer will. 
we can't conjure this up in our own hearts. It truly is an act of God. And it's part of the blessing that comes from knowing Christ. It's the ability to not be defined or controlled by our persecutors, by those who have perpetuated evil against us. But it's the freedom and the blessing of being defined by Christ, released from the power of another person who has harmed us to define us and letting Christ define us as his own. Peter quotes Psalm 34 again here in verses 10 through 12, what we just read. He quotes it, he actually quoted it before in chapter 2, verse 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's Psalm 34, verse 8. But Psalm 34 drives home this point of, in this call to non-retaliation, to not seek vengeance, but to seek peace and seek good, the good of other people that harm you. And he also, in Psalm 34 also drives home the point that the Lord sees the hearts of the righteous and the wicked. And he, God, our God, will justify the righteous in his time. It's leaving our vindication for wrongdoing in the hands of our judge, which is key in being able to bless anyone who seeks our harm. So Christ is the catalyst for renewed relationships. That's the first way Christ is our hope. Second way Christ is our hope. Christ provides purpose in unjust suffering. Purpose in unjust suffering. We've talked about unjust suffering already in a sermon. We're not going to spend too much time with it here, but... Let me read again verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You know, unjust suffering doesn't just affect one group. As we talked about a few weeks ago, it affects many people, many lives. You know, during our current day and age here in the West, you know, the odds of us suffering uh, unjustly because of our commitment to Christ, it's fairly low. I mean, in relation to the rest of the parts of the world and throughout history. But, in, but we're, uh, we're not likely to suffer in ways other believers are currently suffering in other harder-to-reach, hard-to-live places in this world because of their faith. But we're still called to live differently in the world. And that could bring some ridicule. That could bring some unjust suffering. You know, to not succumb to the pressures of the culture that may be felt because of our commitment to the scriptures and the faith can sometimes bring antagonism. We know this. And Peter reiterates here again what he did in chapter 2. Suffer for doing good. And you'll be blessed by God. Now Peter says when this kind of suffering comes your way, don't fear those who oppose you. It's verse 14. Don't fear them but remain faithful to Christ. And then beginning in verse 15, he continues to instruct us on how we should carry ourselves when we suffer unjustly. You know, verse 15 has been the, uh, the champion verse for Christian apologetics, probably since it was written 2,000 years ago. Uh, I know as far as I can remember my brief 37 years here, but 
In Peter's mind, he probably is not thinking of a professional or academic field called Christian apologetics, right? Um, But he's probably concerned with honoring Christ as holy, which he says here, that will come through most distinctly when we're called upon to defend our faith, particularly in the midst of unjust suffering. You know, that's the thing many modern apologists fail to remember. It's that Peter desires for us to persuade others to follow Jesus, not primarily behind lecterns or pulpits debating at universities, but in the midst of suffering. When you suffer, that's the greatest apologetic for how you cling to Christ. When you don't deserve it and you're in the middle of it, claiming your hope in Jesus Christ. And he says in suffering that we honor Christ as holy in three ways. Three ways. First, we honor him by having our minds transformed by Christ. Having our minds transformed by Christ. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. You know, when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, I truly believe the most neglected of those four aspects of our person in our culture is our minds. We neglect to love the Lord with our minds. And this can look like a variety of things. Not only could it be attributed by a lack of filling our minds with the things of God, you know, good theology, the word, books we read, podcasts we listen to, sermons. We neglect to fill our minds with those things, with the things of God training our minds to be able to disarm modern arguments against the faith that seek to oppose us. But neglecting our minds could also be that we're filling them with things that are not of God. What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Are you buying into the latest conspiracy theories or ideas? You're not having the scriptures hidden away in our hearts and in our minds to be able to hear untruth and combat it with truth. You know, training our minds is a discipline, right? That means it's hard. It means it's difficult. It means there are some days where you don't maybe want to do it. It takes intentionality, but it's necessary to be ready with a defense of the hope we have in Christ Jesus when we're under the microscopic lens of the culture. Second, we honor Christ in suffering as holy by having our attitudes aligned with his. You know, it's one thing to have all the right answers in your mind. It's quite another not to be a jerk about it. Peter writes, present your defense with gentleness and respect. If there's anything lacking in our culture, it's respect and gentleness when we differ with people. Those who have us on trial, so to speak, should be taken aback by our gracious and humble attitudes towards them. We're not trolls. We don't drop one line in a Twitter comment and then peace out, never to be seen again. That's not who we are. May we truly seek to understand other people before seeking to be understood by other people. They may not return the same gentleness and respect towards you, but that doesn't matter. We possess gentleness and respect nonetheless. And then third, we honor Christ as holy by having our behavior conformed to his. 
when people accuse us of wrongs, of not being loving or of being judgmental or in worst cases of being oppressive, we let them observe our lives and pray that our lives also convey the hope and the gentleness and the love that we are speaking about with our lips. I mean, every single one of us in this room could count probably, I hope on one hand, maybe on two hands, the number of people in our lives right now who at one time proclaimed the name of Christ that have walked away from the faith. Not because they heard arguments that, were, that refuted the faith, but because they saw people who claimed to know Jesus and experienced hurt from them. Countless men and women have deconstructed, to use that word, their faith, not based, again, on arguments, but solely based on the fact that someone hurt them deeply who claimed to believe the gospel. Whether that be a pastor, or a parent, or a teacher, or a neighbor, or somebody in the church. And that is a, that is a de-apologetic for Christianity, right? <laughs> That's not a word, but I'm using it. And listen, we're not perfect, Emmanuel Church. I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But by God's grace, may we pursue holiness on our best of days and may we pursue repentance on our worst of days. There is no reason we should hide behind the veneer of having it all together. But people need to see chinks in our armor and then believe us and see us have great hope in a God who is repairing those chinks in our armor. Man, none of us have it together. I'm so tired of, this off script, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm so worn out from the presentation of put together people. Because none of us are put together. If I stood up here and told you all the ways <clears throat> that my life is broken, you would go, how are you pastoring us? And I would go, by God's grace and his alone. There's no time to play games with grace and with sin. None. It's that, that, those days are over. They never existed, but they're done. The body of Christ needs to be a place of grace, of vulnerability, of authenticity, and restoration. All right. I should, uh, yeah, that, that was not my notes. All right, here we go. <clears throat> um, okay, in suffering. Talking about suffering here. Uh, we honor Christ as holy. That's the first thing. And in suffering, second. We trust God is sovereign. We trust God is sovereign. Verse 17 makes it clear that the suffering for doing good, which comes our way, which Peter's talking about, is God's will. That there is nothing that befalls us that has not passed through his sovereign hand. I can't tell you why he allows certain things to happen. I can't answer those questions for you. But we are assured in the cross of Jesus Christ that even the worst of unjust suffering has a purpose. That has a purpose. That doesn't make the grief any less real. That doesn't make the, the lament any less appropriate. But our hope is that what we're walking through is not arbitrary. But it serves a purpose of our sovereign God. And he will use it for his glory and for our good. And then the last thing here, third way, Christ is our hope. Christ is the guarantee of resurrection. Christ is the guarantee of resurrection. Verses 18 through 22, here's, here's where we get to the hard stuff. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, brief caveat. Uh, I'm going to take a shot at explaining what Peter's talking about here, but there's a strong possibility I am wrong, all right? So I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm using my best hypothetical guesses here, but um, I may be wrong, all right? And that's okay. That's okay, because Martin Luther was probably wrong too, all right? And he's, I'm in good company here. But however difficult this text is, there actually are two truths that are very, very clear. Two truths. One, first, Christ suffered once to bear our sin. Christ suffered once to bear our sin. That's verse 18. Very clear. He suffered once to bear the penalty for our sin. And we already discussed this briefly in chapter 2, giving, where Peter gives Christ as an example to follow in unjust suffering. But here, Peter reiterates the point that Jesus came not just to give us an example to follow, but came to bring us to God, to die as an atonement for our sin, to present us to God pure and spotless and saved. That is verse 18. So Jesus suffered once to bear sin. Clear, to, clear truth number one. Clear truth number two. He rose once to secure our victory. He rose to secure our victory. That's verse 22. Jesus is at the right hand of God, a place of prominence and power and authority with all angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. And these five verses begin with Christ suffering and dying to achieve our salvation, and they end with Christ resurrected and ascended at the right hand of God, securing our victory. Those are very two clear things, 18 and 22. It's the in-between parts that are challenging. So let's take a stab at it. It's going to get a brief. I'm going to try to do this in like four minutes, all right, because we are running up on time. If you have questions, which all of you probably do, ask your GC leaders. They're very equipped. Um, or you can talk to me. Um, all right, here we go. So where did Jesus go? All right, so what is this talking about? Um, what is this text talking about? So verse 19 says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Peter narrows down these spirits to those who formerly did not obey during the days of Noah. All right, so we have spirits in prison in a specific time frame here, the days of Noah. All right, Noah builds, you remember, everybody remembers the story of Noah. Um, it's this cute little children's story about animals that really is the judgment of all humanity, which we don't tell kids about that. Everybody dies except for eight people. Um, but Noah builds this massive ark in the middle of the desert during a time where it had literally yet to rain on the earth, all right? Had not rained. He's building a boat, okay? Water used to come up from the ground to water the earth. Uh, you see that in the first six chapters in Genesis. But it had not rained. And so he's building this big boat for something that is just weird, all right? So as he's building it, he is proclaiming through his building it, and I'm sure verbally as well, when people go, what are you doing, you lunatic? That judgment's coming, 
And he is calling on people to repent. The ark could have held a lot more people, by the way. But there were eight that were saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. That's eight. You can do the math. Everyone else perishes in the flood. Everybody else dies. They did not heed the words or the acts of Noah. So these spirits could be, could be the souls of those who refused to believe during the days of Noah, but in the New Testament, the inner being of a person. So, you know, flesh and spirit, flesh and soul, the dichotomy there, making up a whole person, is the word spirit is very rarely used to talk about the inner person of a human being. Rather, the word soul is used. Suki is used to describe that part of a human. So my best guess, I can give you more reasons for this, we don't have time. My best guess is that the spirits in prison are those evil forces, not the spirits of the people that disbelieved, but the evil spirits that prevented those people from believing the message of Noah. All right? That's my best guess. They've somehow been bound in some way since that day, somewhere. All right? And when Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, dying in the realm of the flesh, being raised in the realm of the spirit, so two realms, not flesh and spirit as in two parts of a person, but two realms, flesh, realm of the flesh, realm of the spirit, he went and proclaimed not a message of second chances, right? Nobody gets a second chance. The scriptures are very clear on that. Once, you're, once you die, you stand before judgment. You're dead. But he went and proclaimed his ultimate victory over all evil powers confirming their defeat. They thought that they had killed him on the cross. When he rose bodily from the dead, he went and proclaimed that victory to the spirits in bondage here. Tracking with me so far? <laughs> some of you maybe, some of you not. You can go back and listen to it later. Um, I can point you some great resources that will confuse you more. But here we go. And then to make matters more complicated... Peter's loving it so far. He ties the salvation of Noah's family to baptism. All right, verse 21. Peter goes on as far to say, baptism now saves you. Verse 21, that's what it says. But, again, this is a good example, by the way, of, sorry, of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. All right. When you come to confusing texts like this in the Bible, what I try to do is I don't start with the question, what does this mean? But I start with the question, what can this not mean? Based off other clear texts in the Bible, what can this not mean? What can I rule out that this cannot mean? And we know, based off other clear texts in the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? That's how we're saved, not of works. Baptism is a work, right? So we're not saved by baptism. So what is Peter talking about? What's he talking about here? So Peter does not mean baptism in a strictly material or magical sense. Like if you get in the water unsaved and you come out, you're saved. No, you enter the water unsaved, you're coming out unsaved, all right? The water doesn't do anything. There's nothing in the water that saves you. 
It's just water. I literally get it out of a hose over here on the side of the building, all right? There's nothing magical about it. Peter actually says in verse 21 there, he says that baptism doesn't function like soul washing. He compares it to washing dirt off your body, right? It's not like it's a bath where you clean yourself up. That's not what baptism is. It doesn't clean up your inner self. That's not what he's saying. But baptism for Peter symbolically represents the entire process of coming to faith in Jesus. Let me think about it. The picture of baptism, dying to your old self, being buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk with him in newness of life. That is death. Sorry, guys. Um, If I just buttoned my shirt, it wouldn't be that problem. Whatever. Um, His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And baptism demonstrates that. It demonstrates the salvific act of Christ in that act of baptism. That God has saved you. And then by baptizing you, the church is affirming your good conscience before the Lord. As far as we are able to tell, you are a believer when we put you in the water. That you are made new in Christ through your faith in Christ. And we as the church are going, yes, we affirm that. And you have good conscience before God. There's much here that I just told you that is sheer guess, all right, based off of clear stuff I know in the scriptures. But again, two things are abundantly clear. In Christ, you are forgiven. And in Christ, you will be victorious. Life is full of troubles. Life is full of unjust suffering. Life is full of heartache and pain. Life is also full of great joy. Life is full of great rejoicing. Life is full of purpose. And death, although it looks like great loss in this world, will be full of triumph. For Christ, our King, has secured these things for us, and he is our only hope in life and death. Just let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy to us, that even as as I stand up here and try to articulate great truths in your word and feel like a deer in headlights sometimes that the Holy Spirit of God is helping us understand what we're reading. And that is a great act of mercy and it's a great act of kindness. We're staring a mirror dimly now, but one day we'll stare in a mirror very clearly for you will remove all the cloudiness and murkiness around things that we don't understand. But there are things that we can understand. There are things that we can believe, clear truths articulated in the Bible that we can cling to and hold on to as a source of our great hope in this life and our great hope as death approaches. May we live in view of our own mortality in a very sobering way, in a way that understands that We don't have forever in this world. 
But we can have great hope in eternity for all that Christ has done for us in his death and in his resurrection. That he is the first fruits, the first fruits of resurrection, that just as Christ bodily rose from the dead, so we too, when he returns, will bodily rise from the grave. That our loved ones who have gone before in Christ will leave graves behind. They will experience newness of life that we will get to enjoy with them. The enemy may take our lives here, oh God, but he can never touch our souls. And even though he destroys our bodies here, you're even making those new too. May we remember, remember our hope. Remember our hope, even in the darkest times we walk through in this life. We love you, Lord. For these things in Christ's name, amen.